All right, how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you enjoy things on television like Law and & Order and Court TV and stuff with courtrooms and lawyers and stuff in it? Okay, so good, about 60% of you. That, that's good, because we're in a series right now called Life of Paul, and we are um, at a point where Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is recording chapter after chapter of legal proceedings, okay? In fact, there is so much court cases and legal proceeding stuff in this section of the book of Acts that there's even a theory out there that the book of Acts was a legal brief that was written for Theophilus. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it is true that the book of Acts was written to a guy named Theophilus. That's who it was written for. If you read the first couple of verses of Acts, you'll see it was written for a guy named Theophilus. But the theory goes that, um, that this this was a legal brief, like chronicling the, the history of Paul's legal you know, troubles up to the point of the case that they were on, and that Theophilus is a lawyer or a um, investigator or a court officer of the court of some sort, and this is a legal brief that was given to him. I've seen that online a couple of times. There's even a book that was written about it. Um, I doubt that theory because the book of Acts actually is the sequel to another book. Did you know that? Okay, Acts is actually the sequel to another book that we call Luke. So Luke wrote the book that we call Luke, and then Luke wrote the book that we call Acts, um, and one is a continuation of the other. So Luke wrote a biography about the life of Jesus Christ for Theophilus. In fact, you can tell. If you just read, read the first four verses of Acts and read the first four verses of Luke, and you can tell that both the books are written by the same guy, and they're written to the same guy. Um, and one is a continuation of the other. So he tells the whole story of the gospel and Jesus Christ, and then Acts, the, second, the sequel, tells the continuing story of Jesus Christ's people after his time on earth. So I don't think Acts was meant to be a legal brief because it is the sequel to a, a book that was certainly not a legal brief. Um, also, there's too much irrelevant information in it if it were a legal brief. Um, if you read through the book of Acts, especially from the beginning, um, early on, the, you know, Judas... Uh, kills himself, and then they choose a, a disciple to replace him, and they cast lots, and they decide on Matthias, and that's a story that's right there in chapter one. And I think if you were writing a legal brief for Paul's legal proceedings, there, you wouldn't include that in there. It has nothing to do with Paul's life and his, his uh, legal stuff. Uh, shortly after that, there's a story about Ananias and Sapphira, and they lie, and God strikes them dead. It's a cool story, but it doesn't have anything to do with Paul's legal troubles, okay? The first, uh, approximately third of the book of Acts is mostly about Peter, which I don't think is something you would do if you were trying to just chronicle Paul's legal troubles. So um, I don't think that, that this is a legal brief written to, to Theophilus. However, I do suspect, based on the way that the book of Acts ends, that Paul's upcoming Roman trial was the topic of the day. Like it's what they were thinking about at the time this was written. Acts ends, if you just skip to the last chapter, Acts ends um, with Paul under house arrest and he is waiting for his court date with Caesar. And so I think among Paul's friends, that was probably the topic of great interest at the time. So when Luke chronicles what happened with Jesus, he does that, gives it to his friend Theophilus. Then he says, well, what happened next? And so he talks about what happened in the early church. And by the time he gets to the end of Acts, there's a lot of stuff about Paul and trials and legal proceedings. And I think because that's the thing that everybody was thinking about. That was the next big thing that was going to happen. As Luke is writing the history of the early church, it's, ooh, there's this, there's this court date coming up with the Caesar. So last week's sermon was titled the first hearing, Governor Felix. And the reason it was titled that is because um, Paul gets transferred to a town called Caesarea, and there is a series of three hearings, three legal proceedings that take place. And last week, our associate pastor, Doug Davison, preached, and he preached on the first of the three hearings. And the reason it said Governor Felix last week is because Governor, like Felix was the name of the man who presided over the trial. 
So today, our sermon is the second hearing, Governor Festus. Why is it called that? Because this is a second hearing in a series of three legal proceedings, and the person who's presiding over today's hearing is Festus. Okay, Felix has been replaced with a new judge, a new governor, and his name is Festus. So how do we get here? Like, how did we get from first hearing to second hearing? How do we get from Felix is the one in charge to Festus is the one in charge? And for that, we're going to have to read the transitional verses that take us from one passage to another. So if you have your Bible with you, you go to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, I'm going to start reading in verse 26. And 26 and 27 are the last two verses that our associate pastor Doug Davison read last week when he was preaching. This was the last two two verses of his text. So I'm going to reread them now and then go into the new material. Acts 24 verse 26. At the same time... He, that's Felix, the judge over the case, he was also hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. For this reason, he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. So you might remember this from last week. This is the verse that lets us know there was some corruption in the system when it comes to the Roman Empire. The judge was hoping that Paul would give him money. I think the judge, Felix, and I think, I don't remember if you said this last week, Doug, or not. The assumption is that Felix, I think, knew that Paul was innocent. But I think he didn't want to let him, he didn't want to declare him to be innocent without getting paid for it, right? He was hoping money would be given to him, a bribe would be given to him to let him go. It did not happen, and so Paul stayed in prison, okay? So the next verse, verse 27. After two years had passed, okay, so Paul's in prison for two years. Felix received a successor, Portius Festus, okay? Festus is his name for the rest of the passage. And because he wished to do a favor for the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison, So what happens here is Felix is the judge. Felix hears the case. It sure looks like it's in Paul's favor, especially from Luke's account, the way we have it here. But Felix doesn't render a verdict. He doesn't say that Paul's guilty or innocent. He just doesn't do anything. The case is just pending. I don't even know that that can happen. I don't know if that can happen in our country or not, but I guess back then it could. He He just didn't declare guilt or innocence. And so Paul just went to prison and just waited and waited and the case was just, you know, open. So in the meantime, while there's this two years where the case has not been decided, the judge gets switched out. The governor of the province, which is the same thing as the judge in the case, gets um, switched out Felix to Festus. How did that happen? The way that happens is um, someone higher up, I think typically the emperor, they appoint someone different to be the governor. So Felix is the governor of this province, and they say, okay, you're no longer the governor. We now appoint this person. And so that's how they would switch out governors. This was not a democracy. They did not vote. It's not like all the people got together and they voted Felix out and they voted Festus in. Nobody got to vote. They just said, the the, the person that was your governor, he's gone. This is the new guy. Do whatever he says. So Festus is now the new governor over this area. And it says during those two years, there Felix was. And he, I guess he didn't want to declare Paul innocent for free. He didn't want to declare him guilty, I think, because he knew he wasn't guilty. So he just, as a, and this is what it says, uh, because he wished to do a favor for the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison. So that will, that will matter a, whole, a lot later. So the, but from the, from the Jewish perspective, Paul's case has not been decided yet. He's just sitting in jail waiting. So next verse. Now here's the new stuff. Chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Then the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking him to do them a favor against Paul, that he might summon him to Jerusalem. They were preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. So I want you to think this through. So here's, we got a new governor, and he is three days on the job. 
That's what it's saying, right? Three days after Festus arrived. So Festus is not, again, they didn't vote him in. He's not someone that's from that province, right? He's someone that's from somewhere else. And the Caesar said, okay, now you're in charge of that province. So he traveled wherever he was from and he shows up in Caesarea, which is the capital city. And now he's the governor. So he has been the governor for three days. He's three days into his administration. As far as I understand this, the province that he was in charge of had both Caesarea and Jerusalem in it. And I think those were the main, uh, I think those were the two biggest, most influential cities. Caesarea would be the capital city, the county seat, whatever you want to call it. It's where the governor's palace was. And it's where he did, it's where he, like he governed the province from. But then Jerusalem would be the next most significant city. Um, And so what happens is three days in, he travels to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because it's the other big city in the province. It would be like if someone became governor of Florida and they were in Tallahassee on day one, that would make sense, right? That's the capital. So they would be there and let's say they were in Tallahassee on day one, day two, day three, but maybe on day four, they might travel to Miami. Why? Well, because they're the governor of the whole state and there's significant stuff going on in Miami, significant leaders to meet. And so he's starting his new job. And so he's at the Capitol for three days and then goes to the other significant city. So there he is in Jerusalem. So I'm guessing, so three days he's on the job. It's 75 miles to Jerusalem. So I'm guessing a two-day journey. So probably he's five days on the job when he shows up. So he's been governor for five days. The Jewish people there in Jerusalem come up to him. And I don't know if there was any small talk, but it seems like pretty soon they get right to it. Hey, the court case about Paul, like we have not forgotten. Okay, two years ago, we had this whole trial. We accused him of stuff. And Felix, well, Felix, eh, kind of, we sort of like Felix. He did not declare him guilty. We don't like that. He kept him in jail for two years. We do like that. Uh, But he has not, like, he's not finished the case. We don't like that, right? So we're asking you, will you please finish what Felix started? Can we get this, can we get a verdict here? Can we get this case? We've made these accusations. Can we get this to go on? So that's what they go up and they ask him to do. Um, Like, you're the new, you're the new Felix, right? You're the one that would be in charge of this. If this case is ever going to get closed, it's going to be because you did something about it. Will you please, and not only will you please, but they specifically say, will you transfer it back to Jerusalem? Can we hold the trial here? right? And they explain why they wanted to do it, because they didn't even want the trial to happen. They didn't even believe in the justice system. They were preparing an ambush along the road to kill him, right? This is exactly the same thing they had done earlier. Do you remember this? Earlier, they had requested a transfer from the barracks to the Sanhedrin, not because they wanted to have a real trial, but because they wanted to kill him in transit. It's the same thing here. They go, hey, will you please have the trial in Jerusalem? Why? Because their plan was to kill him in transit between Caesarea and Jerusalem. So, Paul is literally in the same situation he was in two years ago, okay? Which was for us one sermon ago, right? So he's in the same exact situation that he was in. The Jewish people are hurling accusations at him, right? They are trying to get him killed. He is, they they don't have proof. There he is showing up for his trial. Um, the, The governor knows that he hasn't done anything. Like it's a very similar situation. So now there's a new governor. This new governor is about to find out what's going on. Um, but it's, it's the same situation from two years ago. It's an un, undecided trial. Jews are against him. Um, he's defending himself and they want to kill him along the way. Like they don't even want the trial to actually happen. They want to kill him in transit. All of those things were true two years ago. They're all still true. Nothing's changed in two years. All right, so next verses, chapter four. However, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me and accuse him if there is any wrong in this man. When he had spent not more than eight or 10 days among them, he went down to Caesarea the next day, the next day, seated at the judge's bench, he commanded Paul to be brought in. So it looks like Festus wants to do things in order, 
Like he, and, and so they come along and go, hey, will you transfer this to Jerusalem? Because this is what we want. We want you to do a favor. And he goes, no, that's not the way this works. Um, the, the, the place where we do these things is Caesarea. My palace is in Caesarea. The court case is in Caesarea. The prisoner is in Caesarea. Like we will do this the way we're, we're going to do this by the book. However, if you want to come, you can. Like you all can travel with me and come and make your accusations and present your case. In fact, as soon as I leave here, like we'll get on that right away. I'm, I'm going to go there in about eight or 10 days. So if you just wait eight, eight or 10 days, you can come with me and we'll get right on that. And so that's what happens. So they travel with him and it says the next day after he gets back, they resume this trial. And so the reason I point this out, just wanted you to kind of think through the, the timeline here. Festus jumps on this right away. He is three days on the job. He travels maybe about two days to get to Jerusalem. So he's five days on the job. Then he talks with them. He stays there for eight to 10 days. That's a range. So I'll pick the one in the middle, nine. So we got nine days plus five. So he's about 14 days into his administration when he starts traveling back to Caesarea. I'm assuming about two days to get back to Caesarea. And then when he gets back the next day, he calls this court case to be finished up. So this is approximately the 17th day of his governorship. So this is like, he doesn't put this off. He becomes governor and within the very first month, he goes, okay, let's start taking care of cases that Felix never took care of and let's go ahead and do this one. And so he jumps right on it. Verse seven, when he arrived, the he there is Paul, because the verse before just said he commanded Paul to be brought in. Verse seven, when he arrived, when Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. While Paul made the defense that neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned at all. So what we see here is a replay of two years earlier, okay? The Jewish people travel to Caesarea. They make all their accusations. They are not able to prove their accusations. They do not have any evidence. They just say, this is what we think he did. There are no eyewitnesses there to testify to this. If you can remember back, I guess, a couple of sermons ago, remember when this all drama started, when he was being accused of sneaking someone to the temple that he wasn't supposed to? Do you remember that? It said it was the Jews from Asia who made the accusation. And I told you at the time, I think that those were people from Ephesus that were in town because it was Pentecost. It's been two years since that happened. I'm guessing those people went back home, right? They went on with their lives. So there are no eyewitnesses around. None of the original accusers are there. There's no evidence to prove anything. They're just still mad about it and still making their accusations. And so it's all the same thing. And then Paul makes, I think, a somewhat similar defense. Paul's defense is, I didn't do it, right? So they say all this stuff. And he goes, yeah, I didn't do that. And you can kind of picture this from, from his point of view. Two years ago, we did all this. And I told you I didn't do it. Like, check the, the court transcripts. Check Felix's file. Like, two years ago, I said I didn't do it. Since then, I've been in jail the whole time. I still haven't done it. Right? That, that's it. I mean, that's not what he says. The way he says it is, neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned at all. So, verse 9. Then Festus, wanting to do a favor for the Jews. And let me pause here. That's an interesting little phrase because this is now the second time that Luke has said that in a very short number of sentences. He had said the same thing about Felix, right? Felix left Paul in prison for two years wanting to do a favor for the Jews. Now we have Festus with the same thing, wanting to do a favor for the Jews. Why? Why are these governors of this province always wanting to do a favor for the Jews? And this is, I think, the answer. It's political. 
They've been placed in this position and their job is to keep peace in the empire and they want their constituency to be happy with them and not angry and not rioting and not upset. And so I think that's the reason he even traveled to Jerusalem to begin with, to get to know the leaders that are in these places in order to get people to like him and to make things go well in the province. And so Felix wanted, so Jerusalem is one of the significant, I already told you, one of the very significant cities in this province. And it's, that's a, a Jewish city, if you didn't know, like, so, so it's just filth, all of these Jewish people that are there. And so what they want is to please their constituency and they don't want them to be upset and they don't want them to be complaining to the Caesar about them. And so Felix does them a favor. And now Festus wanting to do a favor for the Jews. This is just a common systemic thing. It just keeps happening. They wanna make sure that they please these people. In fact, not only was it this governor and not only was it the governor before him, if you go back half a generation before this, there was another governor of this same province who did the same thing. You may know, because it's pretty famous. There was a governor, as far as I can tell, of the exact same province. Caesarea was the capital, Jerusalem was in the province, and the name of the governor was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the guy who was in charge about 25 years earlier, and he was in Jerusalem, and the same thing happened, if you remember the story. If you've ever seen an Easter play, the Jewish people accused Jesus of something he didn't do, right? They accused him. And Pilate did the same thing that Felix and Festus have done. They've looked at it and they've said, I don't, see anyth- I don't think he's done anything wrong. And then he said, but okay, and let them kill him, right? That's the story with Jesus. Pontius Pilate let them kill him, even though he knew that he was innocent. And 25 years later, we see Festus and Felix, who are his successors. They're in the same exact position, the governor of the same territory, and they're still doing the same things. So... Festus, wanting to do a favor for the Jews, so just like, I think just like Pontius Pilate, I'm, 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 instead of being courageous and doing the right thing, like, let's just try to please these people. So um, this one is probably is not as bad as what Felix did or what Pontius Pilate did. But wanting to do a favor for the Jews, he replied to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem there to be tried before me on these charges? Okay. Um, <clears throat> why does he do that? Well, because the Jewish people had said, can you transfer us to Jerusalem? And at first he told them no, and now it sounds like he wants to throw them a bone and go, well, maybe we can. Maybe that can be a way that we can make them happy. We'll go ahead and move it there. So he says, Paul, are you fine with a change in venue? What does Paul say? No, he's not dumb, okay? Paul is not stupid, so he objects. Look at verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Like, so what, where should this be decided? Right where I'm standing. Is the, where, and, and the person who's supposed to decide is you, right where you're standing, right? We're in the right spot. I'm at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried and I have done no wrong to the Jews as even you can see very well. If then I'm doing wrong or have done anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Festus um, suggests the change in venue. I, I don't know... Like, I'm assuming that when the Jewish people said, can you transfer to Jerusalem? I'm, I'm assuming they didn't say, so we can kill him along the way, right? I'm assuming they just said transfer him to Jerusalem and, and Festus didn't know. But nonetheless, he's going along with it and going, well, how about we transfer you to Jerusalem? Well, Paul says, no, I don't know why. I mean, I, we can know he said, why, because he says, you cannot give me up to them. That's the reason he says, no, I don't want to be given up to them. But for, for what reason? Does Paul suspect that they will try to kill him in transit? Maybe he could suspect that because they had tried to do that two years earlier and he was aware, he had heard about the plot that they were gonna try to do it two years earlier. So it's possible that he thinks that they're still capable of doing the same thing they were gonna try to do two years earlier. Or it could just be that he thinks I will never get justice there, okay? I I could hardly get justice here in Caesarea and this is sort of a neutral town. There's no way going back there is gonna make it better. 
So whatever his reasoning is, he says, no, he points out that he's a Roman citizen. He points out he's already in the right courtroom. Festus should have declared him not guilty, just like Felix should have two years earlier, but that did not happen. So Paul makes a masterful legal move. He says, you cannot um, give me up to them. Look at these words. I appeal to Caesar. Now, this is something that Roman citizens had the right to do. And as we've already established, Paul had said, I am a Roman citizen. I'm a citizen of this empire, and I have the right to request this. So the thing that he's requesting, and I looked it up, it's called a provocatio. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, because I've only ever seen it in print. But it's like the word provocation without an N, and it looks Latin to me. So provocatio, which is, um, so throughout different times of the Roman Empire, these laws would have allowed people to appeal to a higher court than the one that they were in. At the time period that this is happening, I think the only person that you could use this provocatio to would be the emperor. At this point, that was the only one that you would go up to higher. So he takes advantage of his legal right as a Roman citizen, and he says, I appeal to Caesar. Okay? The reason I say this was a masterful move is because it accomplished two things simultaneously. Number one, it saved his life because now he doesn't have to go through a corrupt trial in the city he's in or a corrupt trial in Jerusalem or get killed in between Caesarea and Jerusalem. Like all of that goes away and he gets, he gets rescued from this corrupt situation he's in. Number two, it provides him with a trip to Rome, right? When he says, I appeal to Caesar, well, where's Caesar? Caesar's in Rome. So it saves his life and, and rescues him from the situation he's in and it provides him with a trip to Rome. You may go, what's, the big, what's cool about that? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, the Lord had told Paul he needed to go there. Do you remember that? So this is, this is one page earlier. I think this was two sermons ago. Um, we're going to put it up on the screen in case you don't remember it. Acts 23, verse 11. Okay, Acts 23, verse 11. The, they, the people had almost killed him. I think they'd almost killed him twice at this point. Okay, he's in Jerusalem. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord had already told him, you got to go to Rome. So then, two years later, he's in this courtroom, and I don't know at what point the idea came to his head, but he realized, like, as a Roman citizen, I can appeal. I can just appeal to Caesar, and I will get out of this situation, and they're going to send me to Rome, which is where Jesus said, I got to go. So I think that Paul, I don't know when the idea came to him, but I think at some point he must have thought, like, oh, this is a twofer. I will save my life, and I will obey God's will. And Festus couldn't do anything about it, because that was the law. If you look at verse 12, this is what happens next. After Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. That's what he had to do. His only other option was to break Roman law in the middle of a courtroom in front of everybody watching. So it's just the, okay, then you get to go. Now, I think it's possible that at this point, Paul may have started to imagine that this whole ridiculous series of injustices that he's been going through might just end up giving him a chance to proclaim the gospel to the most powerful man in the empire. I think at some point he probably started, if I understand his personality good enough, I think at some point he probably started fantasizing about this. Wait a minute. All this stuff, the, all, they almost killed me, then they almost killed me again, then they snuck me off in the middle of the night and sent me to Caesarea, then there was the sham trial, then there was two years in prison for no reason, then there's this other shammy sounding trial, and what is this all coming to? And I think at some point he might go, whoa, all of this might be equaling up to me, having the opportunity to share about Jesus Christ to the most powerful man, in the most powerful empire on the planet. So the, the most powerful man on the planet, I can tell him about Jesus. 
Now, did that actually happen? The the Caesar at this time was Nero. Did he actually get to, to proclaim Jesus Christ to Nero? The Bible doesn't say. The timeline that's recorded in the book of Acts ends before Paul's trial before Caesar. But I think the answer is yes. I think it's very likely that he got a chance to testify to the Caesar. And the reason why, well, let me show you one. Uh, This is Acts 27. So it's the next page over in my Bible. We haven't got there yet, but we will. Paul's on a boat headed for Rome. Looks like things are gonna go bad and there's a storm and they're all gonna die. And I just wanna read you this part as they all think they're gonna die. We're all gonna die. This is common in this story. Okay, well, I think I'm gonna die. There's a lot I think I'm gonna die. So this is what, he's on a boat though. I think I'm gonna die on a boat. And then Acts 27, verses 23, it says, for this night, now this is Paul talking. For this night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve, right? And I think he says that because he's talking to people that serve different, you know, some other God. An angel of the God that I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. How is he gonna get, like like he's sitting there and are we all gonna die? Like he's saying, no, an angel told me we are going to survive because I have to stand before Caesar. So even though the book ends before his trial before Caesar, this is my thinking. If an angel told him that that's what's gotta happen, then that, has, that, had be, that had to happen, right? If an angel said, this is what's gonna happen, even though Acts ends before we get to that point of the story, that must be what happened because an angel said, that's what's gonna happen. I think Paul got a chance to share the gospel with, um, with Nero. Um, I mean, unless the, unless the angel's being really literal, okay? And all he did was stand before Nero and he didn't get a chance to talk. I guess that's possible. But I'm guessing he got to stand before Nero and say something. Another thing I wanna show you. There's a verse in Philippians that I like a lot. I first found it when I was in my 20s and I thought it was so cool and there's not a lot of sermons I can cram it into, but I can with this one and I'm gonna. Okay, I love this part. So I want you to, Philippians chapter four, it's the very last paragraph of the book. It's so fantastic. Everyone ignores it, but you really shouldn't. Philippians chapter four, and I'm gonna read to you just at the very end. Philippians is a book that's written by Paul. It's written to Christians that are in Philippi. Paul is in some kind of imprisonment at the time that he writes it. The letter says so. He says, I'm in chains, right, as he's writing it. So he's writing them this letter. A lot of people think that the imprisonment that he's in is the Roman imprisonment waiting for Caesar. And this is what he says. Okay, this is, the, this is Philippians chapter four, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, Those brothers who are with me greet you. Now, this sounds normal. This is just the end of a letter back then, and even some of our letters are like this, right? So, hey, tell everybody I said hi, right? And all the people that are with me, they all say hi to the people that are with you, right? This is the normal ending to the letter. Now, look at the very next sentence, okay? Verse 22. All the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. What? Wait a minute. At the time Philippians was written, and he's saying, hey, I'm with some Christians, you're with some Christians, my Christian friends say hi to you, your Christian friends say hi to me. Right as he's doing this, he says, I just want you to know, the Christians here, all of us say hi, especially the Christians from Caesar's household. By the time the book of Philippians was written, the gospel had made it into the household of Caesar. Not just made it in there. It's not just that the gospel had been like declared and, and known in Caesar's household. It was believed by people in Caesar's household. He uses the word saints. That's the word he uses for Christians, right? He's saying the Christians greet you, especially what? Especially the Christians that are living in Caesar's household. So the the gospel didn't just make it into his house. Like like there were people there that believed it. Now, who are these people? I don't know. I don't know if this is sons and daughters and aunts and uncles, or if this is like the baker and the butcher and the candlestick maker. Because when you are 
the emperor, you got a whole bunch of people that live in your house that aren't your relatives, right? So this could be bodyguards, this could be, you know, housekeepers, slaves. I don't know who these people are. But people in Caesar's inner circle, people that are in his house and in his palace, don't just know the gospel, they believe it and they are Christians. And Paul knows them and says, hey, they say hi. That's what happened at the time that the book of Philippians was written. How did that happen? How is this verse true? And this is, and we don't know because Paul doesn't say, but I think it has something to do with the day that Paul said, I appeal to Caesar and got on a boat and headed to Rome. That's how people in Caesar's household probably got to know about Jesus. How cool is that? Okay, so what's the application? In this passage, we see God will accomplish his plans even with injustice, even with false accusations and governors that want to bribe and people that are not courageous enough to do the right thing and two years of false imprisonment, like even with injustices, God will accomplish his plans. He's making it happen. And Paul is simply cooperating with what he knows God's will is, right? So in other words, the Lord says, you must testify in Rome, right? That's what God said. You must testify in Rome. So Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. God has made his will known. Paul is cooperating with the will of God as he knows it. So let's make this our application. We're going to go, well, what what about us? Okay, let's let our application be this. God will accomplish his plans in our lives, so you must cooperate with his plans. God has a mission. God has a plan. God has a will. Your job with your life is to cooperate with his will. Now you might go, okay, how do I do that? How do I, like, what is God's will and how do I do God's will for my life? That's a good question. And here's my answer to you. I think you already know. At least if you have attended church here for about a couple, let's say two years. If you've been attending church here for two years, I think it's safe for me to say you already know God's will for your life. I think you already know God's will. You might go, no, I don't think I do. No, let me tell you. I think you do. If you have been here for a couple of years and have even just been half listening, okay, I think you know God's overall will for your life, that what God wants us to do is to love him and to love each other and to love people who don't know God yet. God's will, God's plan for me and you, as he's revealed in his word, God wants us to love him with all of our heart to worship him, to adore him, to glorify him, to live for him. And he wants us to be a part of his family and a part of his kingdom where we care for each other and we minister to each other and we love each other. And he wants us to show compassion to people who don't know him yet and preach the truth to people who don't know him yet and share the gospel with people who don't know him yet and invite them into the family. Like we have not hid that around here. Like it's, it's literally on posters in the lobby, right? There's, so you, you know. God's will. And then God's plan, as far as us doing that, because you might go, well, that's, that's God's will. Why don't we do it? Well, there was a big problem that happened a long, long time ago, and it still exists to this day. Sin messes up that whole plan. Sin is this huge obstacle for us as far as loving God and loving each other and loving people who don't know God yet. We don't love God as we should. And we not only don't love our neighbor as we should, we mistreat other people because of sin. So God, and this was his big plan, he sends Jesus into our world to die on, our, on, to die on the cross to take care of the problem of sin. That's why Jesus came, to take care of the problem of sin. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. He loved God with all of his heart as he should. 
Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus loved people who don't know God yet. Multiple stories of Jesus loving people who don't know God yet. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to the people who are murdering him. He loved people who don't know God yet. So he lived the life that we should live and then he died on the cross in our place so that all the times that we've messed up could be wiped out, so that our sins could be wiped out. He died on the cross as like taking a punishment in our place or or making a payment for a debt that he did not owe, but we owe. So he dies on the cross for us. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, anybody here, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins are wiped out. Jesus rose again from the grave. So not only do you not have to be judged for your sins, but Jesus rose again from the grave, ascended into heaven, and, and really his resurrection validated or vindicated the whole plan that there is life after death. Like there is an afterlife. And so Jesus came back to life after he was dead, went to heaven, said, I'm going to come back later on, and I'm going to set everything up where we all live forever. And so the people who believe in Jesus can have their sins wiped out, which takes away any sort of judgment that they deserve, and then can live with God forever because there really is an afterlife and Jesus purchased it for us. So now with this new record, we are able to love God and love each other and love people who don't know God yet. Because Jesus has forgiven you and you have a new record, you can actually love God. You are no longer his enemy. You're now one of his children, right? We're his, we're his sons and daughters. So we can actually have the relationship with God that we're supposed to. And not only have we been given a new record, God has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do what he's called us to do. We didn't have a shot at loving God and loving each other and loving people who don't know God yet the way we ought to on our own. But he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can love God with all of our heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can love each other. In fact, the Bible says he give, the Spirit gives us gifts so that we can minister to one another. And the Spirit empowers us to witness to people who don't know Jesus yet. So he gives us the Spirit to make it to where we can love God, love each other, and love people who don't know God yet. So that is God's overall will, right? That's what he's revealed to us, and we're supposed to get on board with that. Okay, now someone might go, yeah, yeah, but see, when, when I talk about God's will, when I go, I need to know God's will, I'm, I'm usually asking about individual decisions, okay? When people say, how can you know God's will for your life, right? Mario, how can I know God's will for my life? What they do not want to hear is, trust Jesus, believe the gospel, and love God, love each other, and love people who don't know God yet. That's God's will for your life. People go, yeah, that's nice. But I got a specific question, Okay. <laughs> Right? Nobody wants to hear love God, love each other, trust the gospel. They don't want to hear that's God's will for their life. They have a specific question. I need to know whether I buy the Civic or the Corolla. That's what I'm trying to do. I need to know, is it God's will? Do I marry Bobby or do I marry Jimmy? That's what I need to know. Do I, do I take the job in Gainesville or do I move to Orlando? Right? I, mean, I can remember being in my 20s and hearing a preacher, then that's the way he, did, he set it up, the same way I'm saying it. Like, is it this or is it this? Is it this or is it this? What is God's will? Isn't that what we do? We want to know. What is it? So let me tell you. First of all, let me start with something real easy. If God reveals to you something that you are to do, like he did to Paul in this case, like where he said to Paul, you must testify in Rome. And then later on, you must stand before Caesar. If God reveals to you something that you are to do, then it's really easy to figure out what you ought to do. You just do it, right? If God tells you to do something, through his word or however, if God tells you to do something like he did Paul, you are to obey. It's that simple. 
But the question becomes, what if he doesn't tell me specifically what to do? Because the Lord doesn't always or even often tell us what to do in individual decisions. Even in Paul's life, God didn't always or even often tell Paul what individual decisions to make. So what do we do? How do we know God's will as we make decisions? Okay, do you wanna know what I tell people? And do you, do you wanna know what I tell people when they ask me? Okay, so she does, she does. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you what I tell people. I learned this a long time ago. I think it's been very helpful. I don't have a verse that says it exactly this way. So take this with however many grains of salt you deem appropriate. But I do believe what I'm about to say is consistent with scripture. If you are not living for the Lord, if you are not aiming your life at the will of God as he has revealed it to you, then it doesn't matter whether you don't follow him in a Corolla or you don't follow him in a Civic. It doesn't matter who you're married to as you don't live for him. It doesn't matter if you don't live for him in Orlando or you don't live for him in Gainesville. Now you may say, okay, okay, but what if I do? What if I really, I want to know the will of God and I really am, I am aiming my life at the will of God, doing what he has called me to do. Then I would say this, you can do that in a Civic or in a Corolla. You can do that married to Bobby or married to Jimmy. I mean, if you're saying, no, my, I wanna do God's will with my life, you can do that in Orlando or Gainesville. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying those decisions aren't important, okay? There's probably some of you here who go, well, I need to know who to marry. I don't know where to live. And he just acts like that, don't matter. No, I'm not saying those decisions aren't important. It's important where you live. It's important who you marry. Oh, it is important who you marry. I was just talking to my kids this week. So I'm telling them, this is the second most important decision you'll make in your life, okay? Remember, I said it just to the kids. I said, the one with Jesus is most important because that affects your eternity. And who you marry doesn't affect your eternity. So that's less. But it affects like, whether it feel, the earth feels like heaven or hell. Like it, <laughs> I did. So... So I'm, I'm, I want to be clear, who you marry is important. And it could be, it could be that marrying Jimmy, like it, it could be that it's way easier to do God's will, married to Jimmy, than married to Bobby, okay? It may be that you can serve God better in Orlando than you can serve God in Gainesville, right? So the decisions, it's not like they don't matter. You need to pray about it. <clears throat> you need to like seek the Lord's guidance. You need to seek wise counsel, like all those things that people, when they do sermons on finding God's will and they say to you, well, you gotta pray about it and you gotta seek the Lord's will and you gotta go ask wise people their opinions. I'm down with all of that. I agree, I agree, I agree. Do all that stuff. But what I'm saying is, <clears throat> in addition to all that, I'm saying this. If you are doing God's will with your life, like what he has revealed, then whether you're married to Jimmy or Bobby, whether you're in Orlando or Gainesville, you're doing God's will. Like by definition, if you're doing God's will with your life, you're doing God's will, wherever you're doing that, whoever you're with. When I was in my 20s, I heard some sermons from a guy named Louis Giglio, and they were very like, formative for me. And I can remember one time when he was, he's a pastor in Atlanta, if you've never heard of him, and he was talking about, he was saying, there are some people that are so concerned about God's will for their life, when they really just need to be concerned about God's will. And then he said this, so simple and yet so profound. He said, because God's will is God's will for your life. 
So in our passage this morning, we see the Apostle Paul is committed to honoring God, to establishing the church of Jesus, to spreading the gospel. He also happens to know it's God's specific will that he goes to Rome. So he cooperates with what he knows, and he says, I appeal to Caesar. We must follow God similarly. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you give us the freedom to make decisions in our life where we don't have to stress over. What if I did, what if I, what if I picked the wrong car? What if I did the wrong whatever? That we can know like there is a, there is a huge agenda you have for the world. And we're either in your kingdom and living for that or we're not. And so I thank you. I thank you for sending people ahead of us like Paul. And there are times where you specifically told him what to do, so he cooperated with it. And I pray if there's anybody in this room that knows a specific thing they had to do. I mean, I'd feel like I just had a specific thing that I knew I needed to do for you just a week ago. And so I pray if there's anybody in this room that's kind of going through the same thing, I just pray that they would be courageous and submissive and obey you. But for those of us that are going, well, I don't, I don't know every little decision what to do. I just pray that all of that would go through the filter of living our lives for you. And we thank you, that, we thank you for the gospel. We would never be able to live our lives for you if you had not come and taken us out of that grave. So we love you and we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for including us in your plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me end.